Well, please take up your Bibles, and we are this weekend just following a series in uh, Philippians chapter 2. It's a very well-known passage, uh, familiar to all of you, most of you certainly. Uh, I am going to read to give us something of the context from chapter 1 and verse 27. Our focus is only going to be on chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, but of course helpful to see something of the broader context. So reading then from verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Did each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others? Now verse five, this is the uh, portion we will uh, tackle today. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So just so far, uh, the reading of the word. Lord, do uh, guide as Isaac has prayed, enable, give unction to the preaching of your word. But Lord, we do pray that in this, that our hearts would be opened and softened, that our minds would be molded and changed into that which would be in keeping with your uh, will and desire for us. Praying for your spirit to be at work today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I read the entire passage this morning because context is always important. Uh, we can't take uh, a word or a verse out of context. Now, Paul's concern, and something that we need to clarify right at the beginning, because this is a familiar passage, this is not primarily a theological treatise. 
so easily because it is such a magnificent passage. Uh, it has been described as an amazing treasure chest of theological jewels. And we're going to see, I hope, something of that this morning. But that's not the intention. Uh, the primary concern is to urge these Philippians, ordinary believers in a local church, to a spirit of unity, to be united, but to be united for a purpose so that they could convey the good news of Jesus Christ into their community, but also to the ends of the earth. So it's unity that he's appealing for so that the work of God can continue. And so having urged them, as we saw Mark uh, showing us last week, to a spirit of unity, he now tells them plainly that this cannot, that this will not take place without a humble heart, without humility. It is not possible to have a united spirit. Now, Vok, it's no different in Pretoria. It's no different to Central Baptist Church. As, as it applies at Philippi, it applies to us. We here in our church, our united obedience will and, and must and, and will inevitably lead to a meaningful progress in gospel ministry. And therefore, the, the message this morning to impress upon us, each one of us, is that if we are going to reach the city, if we're going to reach the ends of the earth in what God is leading us to do, it will only take place if we grow in humility, which is a challenge, a huge challenge. Well, Mark unpacked the previous verses last Sunday and spoke about the motivation for humility from chapter 2 and verse 1. And then he went on to speak, and you can look at this again in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, on the marks of humility. Well, today the focus is on verse 5 to 8, and we're going to tackle the model of humility, the example, if you like, of humility. And we're going to begin, uh, this is the approach that I am going to take this morning, with a crucial, unavoidable truth that we have to face head on. Something I want you to think about this morning, something we need to consider that we need to keep before us. Your, your mind matters. What you think matters. And so therefore the need, my first point this morning, as we look at this passage, remodel, remodel your way of thinking. Modify your way of thinking. This immediately got me thinking about raising children. And so Carol and I learned early on uh, something about children. And so we made it a practice in our home when anything was to be shared, we had an approach uh, that was an attempt to counter selfishness. My kids were selfish. and about yours? Okay. So we did something. So what did we do? In the event of sharing one chocolate between two children, we had four, uh, we would let one child divide the chocolate. You break the chocolate in half, but the other one gets to choose which half. Do, do, do you know that? It's a parenting trick. Okay, and, 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 and so that first child is so careful that he doesn't cheat himself. <laughs> and, and then offers the option to the other child. And 
you see, folk, our natural mindset, your, yours and mine, not just the children, this is true of us, our natural mindset as people is to look out for our own interests. That's, that's what we do. Look, we, we, we look out for number one. And, and, and Paul understands this, we must call it what it is, sinful, selfish tendency, and therefore he tells them in the third verse, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in, there it is, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, nothing ought to be done, nothing ought to be contemplated out of selfish or a conceited mindset. Commentator Jay Muller and I quote him, he says, there must be no sinful egotism on account of self-imagined excellence. That's our problem. Self-imagined excellence. For such a disposition is carnal and unworthy of a Christian. It happened at Philippi. They were acquainted with the Judaizers, religious Jewish people, they prided themselves, patted themselves on the back because of their uh, rigorous observance of the law and, 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 and their adherence to circumcision. They were acquainted with the Greeks who they always found occasion uh, for, again, uh, a description of, of their mindset for vain, glorious self-exaltation. Why? In the wisdom uh, that they believed they had of the world, the heights of their own cultural attainments. Now, I, that's then. What about today? What, what about Central Baptist Church? What, what is it that drives this egotism that may be prevalent or this, this self-aggrandizement? Is it uh, feelings of cultural superiority? Hard, difficult questions. Is it because of socioeconomic status, this suburb versus that suburb? or academic achievement, or, the, or theological precision. In my world, in the world of pastors, this is a problem. We, we so easily find ourselves looking down our noses at those who have inferior views of the Bible and of theological definition. Professional recognition, residential location. I mean, there, there are many categories we can look at. And the point that Paul is making is that none of this is becoming of a true believer. It's not, it's not in keeping with what God wants for us. And so this mind that is selfish and self-centered is adverse to a spirit of unity. And I think Mark used the illustration last week of a uh, porcupine. When you gather a, a bunch of porcupines together, the quills are gonna prick each other. And, and that's what self aggrandizement uh, 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 does. It, it seeks itself and it breaks up the fellowship. And you know what the problem is? It gets in the way of gospel ministry. And the main thing is no longer the main thing. Well, Solomon in uh, the Proverbs he puts it bluntly. Uh, I like his directness. It's, 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 it's uncomfortable. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in the wisdom 
will be delivered. And, and so the wisdom, the wisdom of God from the word of God, given to us from God through Paul, Philippians chapter 2 verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Now here's the problem. That's not going to happen automatically. And I do want to say today that this message is directed to people who are believers. Uh, and the context helps us to see the need for us believers, those who are believers, to take seriously the responsibility of being sanctified. To change more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And, and, and I went on to read the passage because so often the inserted divisions uh, uh, lead us to miss the important things. And, and he gets to verse 12 and, and at the end of this wonderful uh, uh, argument that he presents that I'm going to get to in a minute. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good purpose. In other words, as a believer, you ought to be working at transformation as God is at work in you by his spirit, working toward that transformation. There's an ongoing need for every believer to intentionally keep remodeling their way of thinking, which is contrary to the natural and worldly way of thinking. And, and isn't that true, folk? Isn't it so true? The world will reinforce what is naturally preferred for self. Above all, the world will say the practice is to look after number one. Number one, you, 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 you're the most important. The Spirit of God has a different message through the word of God, pressing something different today. And this is uh, the, the, the first point I'm trying to make. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, I went to the original translation because sometimes the English takes some liberty in uh, making the English flow. So here's the, uh, the translation from the original. Have this attitude among you, which was indeed in Christ Jesus. In other words, be like him. That's, that's what the call is. You and I must modify, we need to remodel our mindset. And yes, the issue. This is where we're going to get to a second point in a minute. We, we do this by contemplating Jesus, looking at Jesus, looking at who is the best and the highest and most excellent example and, and model of self-forgetfulness, having a regard for the interests of others. Which leads me to my second point. Remodel your way of thinking by reflecting. Use your head. Use your mind. Looking to Jesus. I want to start at the bottom, if you like, and quote C.S. Lewis. Uh, going back to the problem that we suffer with, pride. So what he says. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Isn't that so? That trouble in, in your home with your marriage? It's pride. Trouble in a church that's fractured? Yeah, individuals think too much of themselves. That, that, that's the problem. It's pride. He goes on. He says, pride always means enmity. It is enmity. 
and not only enmity between man and man, woman and woman, if you like, but enmity, enmity to God. Pride, dear friends, is a horrible and destructive beast. It must be destroyed. We must fight pride in our lives. I found a story that I think makes this point of a, a Spanish bullfighter. This apparently took place in 1985 who made a tragic mistake. He thrust his sword a final time into the bull. The bull collapsed. Thinking that the bull was dead, the bullfighter turned to the crowd to acknowledge applause. But the bull was not dead. It rose and lunged at the back of the unsuspecting matador, piercing his heart with its horn. Now, pride is like that. It, it, it's, it, just when we think, just when we think we've conquered pride, we turn to accept congratulations, whether it be self-congratulation or uh, applaud from the crowd. Pride stabs us in the back. And the point is, it won't be dead until we're dead. Sanctification will be complete only when we die or when Jesus comes to, to fetch us. So therefore, to fight pride by repeatedly focusing on the Savior, having our way of thinking, our mindset modified, seeing the significance, and now this is what I'm going to do for the rest of this message, seeing the significance of what he did for sinners. And, 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 and in your mind this morning, we have the table before us. What did he do for sinners? He left the glory of heaven. We're going to talk about that. He left the glory of heaven and he came to die for sinners. Don't take that for granted. Don't think lightly of it. And, and so to be sure we have a right perspective of who we are to model, I'm going to begin this uh, elaboration the, on, on our way of thinking. Uh, you can't be confused about who Jesus is. That, that's the very first point that Paul makes in this argument he's making for people to pursue uh, humility. And, and the very first point, and, and never forget this because there are many people who challenge this, Christ was and is divine. Have a look at verse 6. It tells us, who, that is Jesus, though he was in the form of God. Again, the Greek is helpful. Who being identical with the nature of God. That's who Jesus is. Now, why does Paul start there? Now, here's, here's an important phrase, and I, I, I wish I could give you each a piece of paper with this written on it. This is what it says. Why does Paul start with who Jesus is? It is because the extent of the humility of Christ is most apparent when we recognize who it is that is doing the humbling of himself. Did you get that? Who, who's doing this? And, and when you understand who's doing it, it helps you understand whether this is a, a large step to being humble or an infinitely large step at being humble. The verb in verse 6, being, is a present participle. Don't worry about the technicality of that, but it, it essentially is telling us that he was already God before he came 
into this world in eternity past. He always was God. There was never a time when Jesus was not God. John 1 verse 1, uh, we have the clear statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was always God. But, but we need to understand, we need to grasp, we need to be convinced that not only the previous existence of Jesus as God... But the continued existence, Jesus never ceased to be God. He, he, he was and he is and he always will be God. You got that? that that's crucial. Don't believe these other messages that, that people come with, the phantom or, or, or only a man or, or he was just God. And, and No, no, the Bible tells us was, is, always, will be. Jesus, dear friends, is not someone like Mother Teresa doing some kind of noble work. There's an infinite difference in who he is. It is God who, in verse 6, the second part, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. It's a mystery. It is God who does not hold on to the dignity of God. It is God who does not hold on to that which he was entitled to. He does not stand on a right, in fact, which he actually possessed. Again, I quote this commentator Muller. He says, Christ could have existed and appeared only as God, only in a manner equal to God. It was a right due to him. He need not have gone into another manner of existence. But he did. He did. He did not hold on to that manner of existence. In his adorable love and grace, he was willing through his incarnation, Christmas, through incarnation, to enter into another, a more humble manner of existence and to take the form of a servant. So again, the practical application in your mind when you think about uh, selfishness and conceit and as opposed to humility, uh, the extent of the humility of Christ is made most apparent when we recognize and realize who it is that is doing the humbling of himself. Well, God humbled himself. Can I ask a difficult question? That being so, how dare we how dare we as believers think ourselves above developing and growing a mindset of humility? This leads me to my second point. Christ prioritized redemption. Verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. Now it's always helpful to look at other Bible versions and, and here is the Philip's paraphrase of that verse. He did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, the Father's equal. I want to quote Alistair Begg here as well. Uh, the highest place that heaven affords was his sovereign right. But Jesus had a greater priority now listen to this. Jesus had a greater priority, th priority than his own uninterrupted glory. I want to unpack that a little bit. 
What, what is it that makes people so obnoxious? What, what, what is it that makes some people uh, a pain in the neck? Okay. Why is that? Why is that? And I have different. Why is it that some people are opinionated? All of us, I guess, suffer opinionated. Why? What is it that causes confusion and division amongst the people of God? Here's the problem: it happens when individuals who have no greater priority than their own interrupted glory. Number one, number one, they exist simply to promote themselves. And let everybody know how wonderful they are. And so the point Paul is making is that when we live like that, unity is, uh, is impossible. It's impossible. If we're like that at Central, we will never be a blessing to each other and we will never be a blessing to the world. We, we, we must therefore see the approach that Jesus took. And here's the message and the logic that Paul pressed on the Philippians. And, and, and let, me, let me quote again. Let me bring before you the greatest example of selflessness is what Paul is saying. Here is one who by very nature is God. There was never a time when he was not God. He's eternally, truly, totally God. And yet he didn't cling to his prerogative as God because he had a higher priority. A higher priority than his own interrupted glory. And in fulfillment of that priority, planned from all eternity, deliberately and voluntarily set it aside. What is that priority? It's redemption. Saving of sinful men and women, children. That men and women in Pretoria, men and women from the nations of the world would be born again of the Spirit of God and they would live for all eternity in the presence the majesty and the glory and the wonder of God. Now I want us to think a little bit speculatively. If I'm allowed to do this, to try and convey this message of this uninterrupted glory that Jesus set aside. And this, uh, think about a conversation that, uh, humanly speaking, would have or could have taken place in the eternal counsels of God, Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So I'm speaking in human terms. God would have done this differently. Human terms for us to understand. Now, the Father says, now here is the plan of redemption. I will purpose the redemption of sinners. And the Son says, I, by my death, will procure their redemption. And the Spirit says, and I will come and apply their redemption. Now, what, what, is, what is it going to involve? Well, says the Father to the Son, you're going to have to leave. Father, you mean leave all this uninterrupted glory, Father, Son, and Spirit together in eternity past? You mean leave all the blessings and benefits of our communion where in Trinity we have no need of any other person. We're completely self-subsistent and self-existent. Yes, says the Father, you must leave. And, and what will I do? You will go to time, space, planet. You will go down there and you will become a human fetus. 
a fetus go through a birth canal? That's what you will do. And, and then what? Then you will live and then you will die. You see, folk, in the light of what Jesus has done, we must repent of thinking ourselves as most wonderful, as most worthy, as promoting ourselves as most important. Instead, we need to, those in the church, those who are believers, in the context of our fellowship and community, in the context of our homes, husbands and wives and children, in the workplace and in private, have a mindset of prioritizing the purposes of God and the glory of God, setting aside our own what uninterrupted glory. Leads me to my third point. Verse seven, Christ set aside privilege. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now again, we have to ask ourselves, the theology is deep, it's rich, it's broad, it's argued. I can't do that this morning. It's not the purpose of the passage, uh, but I'm going to briefly touch on it. What does it mean that he made himself nothing? Well, we need to be clear that in making himself nothing, he did not give up on being fully God. Right? Didn't do that. Jesus made himself nothing, not by subtraction, but by addition. Being fully God was not taken away. It was not left behind. But made himself nothing by the addition of humanity. He became an obedient servant. And so since Jesus did that, Again, we have to ask ourselves, why then do we find it so difficult to be servants in the church for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the body, for the sake of his name? Surely we need to learn from Jesus, yeah, as our model. Elsewhere, let me give another example where he taught. Some of you will remember the occasion when James and John thought they were the senior disciples. They came to Jesus to secure the prime seats in heaven alongside of Jesus. Jesus puts them in their place, tells them not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles. We're not part of the world. We like to boss everybody around. And this is what Jesus says in verse 43. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. The eternal God made himself nothing when he took on human flesh. When he came to walk the streets of Jerusalem to be spat on by the people that he made, then putting him to death. Why then do we find it hard to serve in the Sunday school? To be an hour longer on a Sunday? Why do we find it hard to be involved in sharing the gospel with people around us or be part of a hospitality team that serves us at the Hill Cafe? Why do we find it hard just to be obedient for the sake? And folk, we find it hard because of self. There's no other reason. It's self and, and it's in me, it's in all of us and it's a beast. 
In terms of the model, we to see and we learn that Jesus was willing to set aside privilege to be a servant. He did not stand on his rights. He did not project attitudes of entitlement. Never. My last point. Christ obeyed to suffer the death of deaths. Verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, think about this, because we think death, there's no ordinary death, because there have been and there will be ordinary men and women who die for a cause. We have lists of Christian martyrs, many burnt at the stake. There are soldiers, many soldiers who have died, we know, for king and country. And if I can take it outside of the Christian fold, there are even Muslims who give themselves in jihad. So this is just not an ordinary death he's speaking about. Jesus died like no other person. No other person ever will die. Jesus' obedience was to the Father. It was to the Father's plan for him. That by his death, and this is the issue as we go to communion in a minute. It it was his purpose that through his death he would bear the wrath and the punishment that is due to us for our sins. That's the nature of the love of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now don't forget who he is. God. Practically for us, the reason this verse is there is for us to see, this is not practical application, for us to see that we can never exceed the depth and extent of humiliation that Jesus suffered. Now I can put that in practical terminology. Surely then, there is nothing so menial in the scope of our work in gospel ministry that is below us, even if it means cleaning the toilet. That's, that's the point. Serving others, being insulted, facing persecution, getting our hands dirty in the course of ministry. So, folk, I conclude. I confess, having to eat humble pie in any situation is not an easy thing. It's easier to, and natural to justify yourself or excuse yourself, explain yourself. It's far easier to stand up on your rights or think yourself more highly of yourself more highly than you ought. It's far easier to believe you've done enough or done your bit or gone far enough for a particular person or group. Until you spend a few minutes contemplating who Jesus is and what he has done for undeserving sinners. And I hope this morning something of that is stirred in your heart. Him walking a road from glory to the grave surely will change your mindset. And so my my question, my challenge to myself I work with people, I'm a leader, I know uh, my own uh, pig-headedness. 
Will we take up the challenge to modify, remodel our approach to God and others? Taking a a long, hard look at the road of ultimate humiliation that Jesus walked to save you from your sin. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts together as a result of this message would lead to much fruitful gospel ministry in this city and to the ends of the earth, giving you the glory that you're worthy of.